This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with author Brian Rosepa. He discusses his new book, You're Hired, A Guide to Working in Sports, in which he interviewed a series of athletic directors and general managers from a selection of top schools and professional sports teams. He highlights common threads in organisational hires, how they use search firms in order to find suitable candidates, and hints and tips in order to prepare for interviews. I hope you enjoy. Brian, first of all, thanks for reaching out and obviously thanks for uh, sending me a copy of, of, of your book. I guess first question is, how are you and how are things over in the States at the moment? It's going well. Uh, yeah, coronavirus, unfortunately, is uh, picking up quite a bit, especially within uh, the county that I'm in in Michigan. Uh, but, you know, we're kind of just trying to push through with it. I'm sure things are going to change over the course of the next few months. Hopefully it doesn't get too bad. But overall, uh, yeah, just... Not looking forward to the cold weather, but trying to stay optimistic overall. Well, you reached out regarding your book and stuff, and as I said, you sent me a copy, which is good. I guess the first question linking into that is, why did you want to write it? What was your reasoning behind wanting to write a book of this sort? Yeah, so my undergrad degree is in sports management, and so, you know, naturally I was, and just being a sports fan in general, I was just kind of inclined to working in sports myself, and so... As I was going through my undergrad degree um, and going through my education there, I had worked in minor league baseball for a couple of years. And, you know, just kind of going through that experience myself really opened my eyes to, you know, what working in sports really entails. And I think that from the aspect of someone that, you know, wants to work in sports, I think that's kind of who I was writing to in one element, just kind of giving them this background of who, who, how to get these top level jobs and, you know, coaches, general managers, athletic directors, uh, you know, it's kind of a mysterious process to a lot of people. So just kind of give them some background on that. And then kind of on the other side of it, you know, just I'm sure, you know, as a sports fan yourself, just working, uh, you know, looking at social media, things like that, there's after every game or during every game, there's questioning of coaches, questioning of these moves, uh, wondering, you know, how how do we get these free agents or this traffic or however, however it goes. And so I kind of gave a little bit of insight as far as how that goes, how these, you know, more uh, nitty gritty details go. And then overall, just kind of looked at the day-to-day lives of these top level jobs and kind of just tr- tried to provide a realistic outlook. So really, yeah, just like I said, I mean, having worked in it myself, you know, just trying to give people an adequate, um, you know, background as far as what the life is actually like. And then again, just a, a behind the scenes look too, to an extent. And then from people that have read it so far and whatnot, how, how has it been received? I'm really thankful so far that, uh, you know, haven't really gotten any negative feedback. So I'm definitely happy. It's, uh, it's given a being a bit of an ego boost. So that's great. <laughs> it's good. So in terms of um, your kind of insight into the industry, obviously you mentioned that you worked in baseball there. What role did you take up and, and what did that look like for you and how did you get it, I guess? Yeah, so uh, the, the more the more primary role that I had taken on was working in communications. So I was running the social media, um, things like that, interacting with the media, you know, kind of setting that their interviews up, media relations, that kind of thing. Uh, and then just kind of the general overall social media communications like that you would find online. Uh, and then as well as like the program and things like that too. And um, more or less, that one was pretty straightforward. I'm from like the general area that the team was located in. So it was just a straight up apply and that actually worked out for me. But, um, you know, overall, I think that that kind of experience, it did, I guess, shift my opinions as far as working in sports. And while I someday may work in sports again, um, you know, at the time, it just, you know, wasn't a great fit. And I think that a lot of people will find through reading the book that it might not be a good fit for them. Um, you know, the, the hours are super long. Uh, you're working nights, you're working weekends, you're working um, basically through every single event. You know, you think about going to a baseball game on uh, Memorial Day weekend, and, you know, that sounds great to go to, but, you know, you're working all those things, uh, you know, while working in sports. Uh, but with that being said, you know, I didn't want to write a book to like dissuade people. I kind of just wanted to 
provide them with a realistic look so that they would know what they're getting into. And I think that I did a pretty good job of that just based on my own experiences and then based on the experiences of all the people that I had spoke to for it. So what things surprised you when you went into the role? Yeah, so I think that what you'll find with a lot of jobs in sports is how little your actual role could have to do with sports themselves. So, um, you know, I was fortunate with, with working in communications that, you know, I worked happily with the athletes in one-on-one kind of situations and was able to kind of take in the game as I was, you know, working social media. But for a lot of, for a lot of uh, different roles within sports organizations, it's more or less just normal business roles, but just, I mean, obviously related to a sports organization you know, an, an accountant with a baseball team is not really going to be having that first row seat and watching every single game. And, you know, it just kind of stretches beyond like that too. And I think one of the other big things is just, you know, if you're not a fan of sports, you're really going to have, you're really going to be tested as far as, you know, do you actually want to be doing this? And even if you are a fan of sports, you know, there's a lot of times where I've come into contact with people who've worked for, uh, longer uh, tenures within the industry. And, you know, you, you just kind of see that they've become a little bit more jaded and pessimistic regarding sports, and they don't really have that, that passion for it that they once did. So, you know, before you go into it, you just have to make sure that, you know, this is really what you want. And, you know, if you do work a year or two and you realize it's not for you, that's not a problem either. You know, sometimes it's better to just, you know, turn on a game for three hours and that's your involvement in sports you know there's nothing wrong with that so I think yeah it's just you know you really don't know until you until you work in it or um, not to uh, to talk my book up too much you know if you read the book I think that that'll uh, help you get a better idea too. No I think one of the one of the interesting things about the book that you mentioned is is kind of the how encompassing certain roles can be um and as you've alluded to there on social media, you think that general managers, for example, have say over absolutely everything. But in, in the book, one of the things they mentioned is the fact that the guy um, wasn't sure about trading Brett Favre. He didn't know if that was a good idea, yeah. but ultimately got persuaded by the coaches that he wasn't going to be right. And then obviously went on from Atlanta to Green Bay and had a, a, Hall, a Hall of Fame career. So... I, I think, like you said there, you, you make assumptions from the outside looking in that maybe aren't necessarily always correct. And I guess from um, the experiences of people you've talked to, they change from organization to organization as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's kind of one of the tougher th- things to really adapt to once you get into these top level kind of roles is that, you know, regardless of the actual involvement that you have in any particular transaction or, you know, whatever happens on the field, whatever your involvement is, that's definitely what you're going to be judged by. Uh, you know, your wins and losses, you know, you, you lost this huge trade, you lost this huge game, you know, regardless of your involvement, you're still going to take on that responsibility. And, you know, you're going to be judged by people, you know, whether it be in the media, whether it be fans and things like that, you're going to be judged by people that don't have the full information as far as the decisions that you're making. But, you know, you're still going to be judged by them. So it's it's tough to kind of grapple with. But you do, with that being said, knowing that, you know, you're going to be de- dealing with criticism within these roles. You just have to make the decision that you feel is best for the organization and, you know, not, I guess, really factor in as many of these outside factors like, you know, fan opinion and things like that. And I mean, obviously, fans are super important within sports and, you know, they wouldn't really exist. Sports wouldn't really exist uh, to the extent that they do um, without fans. It's just, you know, you do you can't really factor things, things in like that. And you have to make again work with the information that you have and make decisions based off of that rather than uh, opinion. And is it, has it changed the way that you view sports from the outside? So are you more considered or empathetic when you're looking at coaches or athletic directors or GMs when you're talking to friends and family and whatnot? Yeah, I would say so. I think that I'm far more forgiving um, than most people. Um, you know, like I said, I, I like to give, I guess to use the Detroit Lions as an example um, with Matt Patricia as the head coach. I think that now I'm starting to reach the end of my line, but, you know, I think that it's fair to give, you know, head coaches, general managers, give them three or four years. Um, Obviously, you know, if there's 
different opportunities and you realize that even after a year, um, you know, it's not going to work out and you have this opportunity to get a better coach or whoever it may be. Um, you know, you need, you need to be able to pull the plug, but I think that a lot of, a lot of fans are too open and uh, I guess too excited to pull the plug right when things get tough. But I think that's just part of building an organization and building a culture is that you have to bring in, you know, it takes time to build, um, you know, especially again, to go back to an organization like the Lions, it's a, an organization that more or less is not one over the course of 60 years or so. And so to right the wrongs of that is going to take more than a season or two. And so I think that, yeah, I think overall, I would say I would uh, definitely have a much longer leash than most. <laughs> I think it is interesting how prolonged success or prolonged failure does affect the fan base or does affect the perception of a team. So to put it into perspective, I like two teams. Basketball, I like San Antonio Spurs. There you go. NFL, I like Miami Dolphins, who are almost the completely opposite end of the spectrum. You've got San Antonio Spurs who have been prolonged periods under Greg Popovich, really successful and always competitive. You've got the Miami Dolphins, who are completely opposite, who have been pretty much garbage for my entire lifespan. And I think that what I notice when you read forums or you listen to fans is the Dolphins fans will always assume the worst and the Spurs fans will always assume the best. And I think it is really interesting how fans can either become jaded by the negatives or be positive just because they semi-expect to do well because they always have done. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I would say that, yeah, I think the Dolphins are doing a great job of turning it around now, you know, with Brian Flores. And I think that that goes back again to an organizational, him building an organizational culture. You know, you look at the roster last year and they obviously won five games but that was a roster that easily could have gone winless but you know you bring in a guy like Flores that comes from that Patriots mindset um, and you know he surrounds himself with uh, people that buy into his culture and you have a guy like leading the team a team leader like uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick you know it's just a great combination I think that you know they're building something that's sustainable and uh, I mean it's exciting to watch. No for sure I think Obviously, <clears throat> linking back to your book and stuff, you, you mentioned certain, I guess, job titles and job roles that kind of the UK audience aren't going to be so familiar with. So it's going to be quite challenging, but you take it take as long as you need to. Can you explain kind of what the collegiate system looks like in the US and then how that then goes on to pros and stuff and kind of, I guess, gloss over some of the roles that you mentioned in your book because it's quite wide ranging the people you're able to speak to? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess the, the most common path for, um, you know, you, you go out of high school and then you go to play division one college athletics. And that's like the top of the top, the elite, the elite athletes. Um, that's the most, um, I guess, uh, where, where every athlete is looking to get, even though, you know, most athletes do not go on to play division one. Uh, then there's also division two, II, division three, uh, then like NAIA, things like that. Division two is also, you know, pretty exclusive. Division three, you can start getting into. Um, it's it's still tough to get into, but obviously not at the level of division one or division two. Um, so it's pretty much just tiered like that. And then within division one, that is, there's like the power five conferences. So um, the Big Ten, the SEC, the Pac-12, uh, you know, the, these home run hitters like the, the Alabamas, the Floridas, the Michigan, Ohio State. USC, things like that. These are the top uh, colleges, uh, athletically speaking. And so within each of these uh, athletic departments are the athletic director. And, you know, every college has an athletic director. But, you know, to be able to get to the to the level of like a Florida or a Georgia or something like that, it's, you know, extremely, extremely difficult. Um, and so then obviously going in from there, you would go um, from your sport in Division One. And then go professionally to whatever sport it may be. And then running those teams is just generally the general manager. Um, so, you know, they're making decisions on draft day. They're making who to acquire, um, you know, while also just running the organization as a whole. Um, so as far as, you know, getting into each of those, you know, whether it be an athletic director or a general manager at the professional level, um, you know, that's really what the book is about, um, you know, and that's, it's, it's an extremely, extremely difficult process just because of how few of these roles that there are, you know, obviously division one has a couple hundred teams, but um, 
you know, or a couple hundred organizations that is and universities, but you know, there's countless people that are looking to get into these roles. And then you look at the professional landscape and, you know, with the NFL, there's 32 general manager jobs. So, you know, it's extremely, extremely exclusive, um, extremely exclusive to get into overall. And so what are the differences between like a D1 and a D2 school? What would the different or D3, what would the differences between those schools be? Yeah. So the D1 is going to be generally like larger schools. So the more like nationally prominently known schools, division two is a little bit more local. Um, so like division one would include like university of Michigan, Michigan state university division two, then you're dropping into um, like a, a Wayne state university, which is like a, it's a college in Detroit. Um, so you're not really going to have too many uh, people that are coming from like out of state to go to Wayne state. And then division three, you know, you're getting even more segmented than that. And you're getting into even more regionally uh, or statewide known schools and more private schools, things of that nature. So um, it, it really does just come down to size for the, for the most part. And how does it affect if we're talking football, for example, and we're looking at uh, Alabama um, compared to a D2 school? what type of sizes in terms of fan bases and game day crowds, obviously without COVID, what differences are we looking at in, in attendance and, and fan bases, et cetera? Yeah. So I guess like the easiest one just in, the, in my backyard here is, you know, the university of Michigan, um, you know, they're at a hundred, 110,000 people in the stands on game days, Wayne state, man, probably a thousand, 2000. So it's, it's light years apart, really. Um, D3 is probably closer to D2 is for, or D2 is probably closer to D3 as far as like attendance levels and things like that. But division one is a, it's, it's, it's a monster really, you know, Alabama, they fill the stadiums up 70,000 or so. Um, so, you know, as far as like funding goes, it's again, a completely, completely different ballpark. The university of Michigan, uh, their football program is probably what makes the athletic department, um, you know, uh, in the black every year financially. So they're carrying, you know, these organizations for the most part. And I, I'm right in thinking Jim Harbaugh is the the coach for Michigan. Is that correct? He is, uh, at least for the time being, according to, to some fans. <laughs> okay. Has he not been doing too well of late now? Yeah, they're one and two so far to open this year. And one of those losses was against Michigan State. And I very big upset so a lot of people are not very happy with him okay so obviously for him if we look at something like that he's someone who's come from the nfl the san francisco 49ers and dropped down and we talk about the budgetary size to attract someone like that um it's obviously going to cost a lot of money for the university to go and pay someone like him right yeah and i mean i think that with especially with jim harbaugh he's, he was in a pretty unique situation where uh, you know it was kind of surprising to see him fired from san francisco just because he was so successful there is just i guess a difference in opinions with ownership um and he went to the university he attended the university of michigan previously so he had a natural like affinity for the school and whatnot so kind of unique circumstances there but yeah, I mean, as far as being able to appeal a professional head coach to come down to the college level, it's going to take an unbelievable amount of money. I mean, even Harbaugh, who had the ties to Michigan, he's a top five coach in the country, uh, as far as top five pay, paid coach in the country. And, you know, to get someone of that level would be, you'd have to pay them in the top five, which is, you know, eight, nine, ten million dollars a year. And, you know, for most athletic departments, that's just not reasonable. And that's why you do see a lot of um, college coaches try to move up to the next level, which now I guess we're seeing with, um, you know, Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because I, I liken it, well, football over here would be the equivalent of like Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola jumping down into a different level, which obviously would be really, really strange. When, when you're looking at those types of, um, we're talking D1 schools and stuff. Can you just talk through what the draft process looks like for them to go from a, a school to go through draft and, and how then they end up in the NFL or NBA or MLB or whatever it is? Yeah, so each league obviously has their own, um, you know, requirements as to, you know, how long you need to be in school in order to, to go. Um, you know, I think that 
with the NFL, you need to be three years removed from high school to be able to join the NFL. The NBA is just a year. Uh, the MLB is kind of a unique situation where you can leave after high school, but if you don't, if you go to college instead of uh, leaving right after high school, um, you would have to be in school for, I believe, three years. And then the NHL is a completely different. That's it with junior hockey and whatnot. It's it's insane to try to track that, but. You know, you have people getting taken when they're 17, 18 years old. But as far as, you know, looking at the NFL, you know, you play your three years in college or you play your two years and have a redshirt year. Um, you know, you go through that and then you go, uh, obviously, throughout that entire time, you're being scouted along the way. Um, scouts are at pretty much every major Division One game um, as far as NFL scouts are at these games. And so that process continues on. And, you know, after you finish your year, generally you're going to move into the combine and workout process. So the combine has, you know, the top 150 or so college players. Um, and, you know, your work, you're doing, you know, various drills to show speed, strength, things of that nature. And then you're at the combine, you're also working to meet with teams. And so, you know, going through the interview process and then, uh, the NFL has, I believe it's something like 30 workout spots so you can bring in players for private workouts. Basically, you know, you're, you're really being tested on your athleticism at that point. And, you know, it was kind of different this year because, you know, you weren't able to have those private in-person workouts. And, you know, you did have to rely on the, the college tape quite a bit more. And so, you know, once you get past all of that uh, through that entire offseason, then that's where you're when you get to the draft and then hopefully are picked. But uh, even if you're not, you're still not out of the out completely because, you know, there's a ton of undrafted free agents that are brought in every year. Uh, I think it's obviously important to say that, you know, in these schools and these Division One schools, as you alluded to earlier, a lot of it is down to if you win or if you lose which can taint or help your record as a player, but also as a coach and stuff and whatnot. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's really difficult at the college level too because, you know, you're not able to go out and sign players or anything like that. You really have to recruit. And, you know, you're recruiting not only as athletically, but you have to bring in athletes that are going to be able to get into your school academically or you're going to have to be able to appeal to them academically or based on location. You know, do I want to, does this particular athlete or does this uh, high school student want to spend this next three years in Michigan when they could spend it in somewhere warmer like Florida or Georgia or uh, California? So there's so many different elements that go into college coaching and, you know, the X's and O's on the field are one thing, but you know, you, you do have to be able to compete recruiting wise. And that, that can be a huge uphill battle, especially for smaller schools. You know, it's tough to tough if you're, you know, a local kind of lower ranked university trying to go up against an Ohio state who has, you know, the newest weight rooms, the, um, you know, this incredible background of uh, a history of winning. And so, yeah, it, it is an incredibly, incredibly tough gig that goes far beyond just coaching on the field. And so I guess that's kind of talked through the process of what it looks like to go through from high school, you get recruited into college, college, you then get drafted into pro leagues. And then obviously if you're in pro, you hopefully stick around, able to re-sign, et cetera. Um, I think one of the common themes I saw running through your book is how challenging it is for coaches, particularly at the college level, whilst they're trying to gain their way to the top job, um, so do you just want to talk through, I guess, some of the interviews you've had with people um, and use some examples of where essentially had to uproot families multiple times to hopefully get a role that, that they want and, you know, one that's more financially reasonable, that type of stuff? Yeah, and that's, again, one of the things that makes the coaching world so difficult is that it really is just pretty much a year-to-year -year basis. You never know if, you know, your, your head coach, if you're an assistant, you never know if the head coach is going to be kept on for next year. And if he's not, then, you know, you're definitely not going to be for the most part. So it really is kind of, especially at lower-level programs, it's just year-to-year. -year and, you know, you could be going from city to city. Uh, one of the people that I had spoken to was a, um, he's currently works as a special teams coordinator um, for Utah State football. 
and he had previously worked at the South Dakota School of Mines as their head coach. And prior to that, he had worked uh, for probably about eight to 10 different uh, universities within the course of 10 or 15 years. So, you know, he's married, he has kids. And so to ask a coach or to ask to get a family on board with, you know, not knowing where you're going to be uh, on a year to year basis, it's, it's incredibly beyond words how difficult that is. Um, it's, it's stressful. It's taxing. You know, you can't really, your spouse really, for the most part, cannot get consistent employment because you don't know if you're going to be there next year. And as far as kids schooling goes, you know, to be moved out of schools and have to make new friends every single year, it's just an incredibly taxing lifestyle. And, you know, once you do eventually get into a head coaching role, you know, you do have a little bit more stability and you have more control over your organization. So, you know, maybe you want to have like the, the family day, like one of the people that I'd mentioned um, within the book, you know, they have families come in or they have your, you leave earlier on a certain day. So you're able to balance that work life uh, a little bit more. But I mean, that, that really is one of the tougher um, overarching, overarching themes is that to find any semblance of work-life balance is, uh, is a very, very difficult uh, task to achieve. And, you know, even though you do have more stability as a head coach, you're you're being asked to do a lot more too, as far as uh, with your time. And did did any of them discuss how taxing it was on the families? Did any of them go into actually how how challenging they found it constantly having to move? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, just the, the overarching thing was just a lot of missed birthdays, a lot of missed games, um, you know, youth games and things like that, and one of the uh, athletic directors that I had spoken to, he had said that, um, you know, he made it a point to take his kids to school every day. And for a lot of times, that was the only time that he would see them throughout the day. Um, or even after work, he would come home later and they would be in, uh, be asleep. So, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredibly difficult sell, especially, you know, when you're early in your career within the sports industry and not making much money at all um you know it's tough to sell uh you know an entire family to, to signing up for that and you know you, you really again need to make sure that this is the priority that you want and that everyone in your life is on board with it or else you know it's just probably never going to work i don't know if you've seen it on on netflix um i think it probably was released a little bit earlier for you guys but last chance you yes um, so the one, uh, I, ca I can't remember the name of the school, but it was, the, I think, the second series um, with one of the coaches who had his family live in essentially a two-bed apartment next to, like, the locker rooms and stuff. And I think that kind of picture puts into perspective exactly what you're saying here, that his family wouldn't be on board with it. Uh, unless they were really supportive even though the girls were saying I don't like it here I want to go back to California and all that type of stuff yeah yeah let alone the fact that they were yeah moving from California to I believe the middle of nowhere Kansas um you know that <laughs> I would have a tough time selling anyone on that so I mean the fact that they are on board with it is just you know incredible for them and I'm sure the coach feels um you know unbelievably supported but then and another aspect has to feel a little bit guilty too that he's taking his family away and putting them in a situation where, um, you know, that's not certainly not ideal. <laughs> I think one of the other overriding themes that, that I got from the book, um, and this kind of goes from um, a general manager um, and a uh, athletic director point of view which in England would be similar to kind of technical directors if you like and director of football and whatnot is um how there's no clear path to those roles how everyone had a very different background could you just discuss some some of the examples that you've got of that because I thought it was fascinating some of the stories you had of how people kind of navigated themselves to end up in these roles and they kind of went on completely different paths to do that yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, kind of some of the more common ways to get into it, you know, you have, um, you know, your MBAs, so, you know, Masters of Business Administration, that's a pretty common background to have, or, you know, you have former players, but it's really, like you said, it's not really limited to just those people, um, you know, in the research that I've done, there's 
uh, athletic directors that had college degrees in uh, like engineering, counseling, political science. I think zoology was one of them. It's just like nowhere would, would you think that, you know, running a sports organization would fall into, you know, that ac academic background. But, you know, these people made it work. Um, some of the athletic directors that I had spoken to, some came from uh, ticket sales, things like that, and just kind of worked their way up. Some were former coaches, some were, uh, had worked in like sports information. So you're working in communication and things like that. So I think that is one of the more promising things that I had kind of discovered throughout the, uh, throughout writing it is that, you know, you don't need to have a specific background to get these top jobs. And, you know, just because you have a degree in counseling, you know, that doesn't rule you out from, um, doesn't rule you out from becoming athletic director. Because I think that, you know, what a lot of people kind of overlook and is just that, you know, how little of the jobs, like I had mentioned, how little of the jobs have to do with sports themselves. You know, coaches even, you know, they're obviously working with, uh, working with, you know, the game plan and things like that, but you also have to have the soft skills to be able to, uh, you know, work between your coaches, uh, communication, work with your team. And then outside of that, you're working with boosters and fundraisers and things like that. And, you know, working within a community and it's just, you know, there's an endless amount of opportunities and, you know, there's an endless amount of responsibilities that come with each job. And, you know, with that, again, it kind of does open the door for people with, I guess, non-traditional backgrounds to break in. Obviously, we, we mentioned there that kind of you, you can divulge in terms of the routes that you go and, and diversify in that. Was there anything that from speaking to these people you saw as a common thread that actually all of them had this quality or all of them had this skill that, that, that allowed them to do, do those roles effectively? Yeah, and I think that the overarching one is you need to be a good communicator. Um, you know, like I said, there's so many different expectations and so many different... Um, so many different areas that you'll be drawn to and will be pulled in different directions. And so you need to set that organizational culture and set that, um, set that clear communication out so that, you know, the, the organization keeps running in the direction that you want it to. And so I guess kind of going out from that, you know, that communication base, you know, you do, do need to be a good networker as well. Um, so, you know, again, working those ties within the community, working with your fellow athletic directors or general managers, working with your coaches, working with, um, you know, the media. It's just between the communications and networking, it's just both are so crucial to be able to not only succeed within the roles or, but also to kind of, um, you know, ascend up the ladder too. And did they give you any really good examples of where they been really effective in that communication to staff or, or boosters or anything like that? Yeah, so I think that a lot of it comes back uh, in the within your fundraising. So, you know, within clear communication and working with boosters and things like that, you know, you need people to buy into your vision uh, for the organization and for, you know, the university. So, you know, I think that that's probably the most crucial part, really, you know, especially as athletic departments continue to kind of, um, you know, their athletic uh, budgets continue to kind of dwindle as the years go on. Uh, it's even more crucial to, to be a good fundraiser. And with that, like I said, you know, you have to get people to buy in to your vision for the organization and make them believe that what you're doing is making a positive impact, not only on the students, not only on the teams, but on the university itself. And was, were there any creative ways that people did that that you came across? Um, coming to mind, not right now. Uh, I think a lot of it was pretty much just uh, general, like pretty specific stuff. But, you know, just looking throughout outside of the book, even, you know, there's, especially now with COVID, you know, people are having to get more creative and athletic departments are having to get more creative. You can't really host fundraising events for the most part. So, you know, whether it be, um, you know, like online auctions, things like that, just online, um, you know, conversations with fans just one-on-one -on -one being able to connect athletes and coaches to the fans it, people are getting a lot more creative and just going through these different teams social media you can definitely see that there for, for people in these roles um often they go into the role and they, you know they're taking over someone else's work and one of the things that kind of stood out in the book was um a coach, uh, and I, I want to say it was John Cohen. Now I could be wrong in in the per, in the person here, but 
he had gone from being a coach to then going into being an athletic director and he'd assumed that all the coaches had worked and had done everything the same way that he did and then he was expecting when he got to athletic director it'd be really easy because he'd just have multiples of what he'd done and he'd be able to gather all the information but when he stepped into that role he realized that actually everyone did it in their own way and for him it was took a long time to try and kind of understand everyone's processes um, is, is, is that something speaking to those managerial positions that they found going into someone else's role or, or getting used to the processes in place were really challenging for them? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think within that kind of transition from coach to athletic director, you go from overseeing one minor aspect of the athletic department to overseeing the entire athletic department. And, you know, a lot of that, just making that transition is going to come down to clear communication, like I said before. Um, you know, working with the, your different coaches to kind of come to a conclusion as far as, you know, the different processes that you want them to follow. Um, you don't, but you also on that same uh, aspect, you don't want to micromanage either. So it's really a fine line to walk and it takes, you know, it can take a lot of time to learn. So, you know, it's, it, it is probably one of the toughest parts of taking on one of those top jobs and uh, just getting, getting used to those processes and, you know, being able to implement your own so that, again, you know, you you implement your own organizational culture. And with John Cohen, you know, he was staying within the same university. So he was part of that culture already. But even while being part of that, he still needs to set in his own processes for doing things if he's going to be an effective leader. And, you know, obviously he has been at this point. Mississippi State has been doing quite well. Uh, so he has made that transition well, but it's very easy to see where others go wrong. One of the things you, you highlight, um, and, and this is a real difference, I guess, between um, the UK and US, is search firms that colleges have to go and find coaches or athletic directors. Can you just talk through that process and some of the experiences that some of the people in this book had? Yeah, so the search firms are really prominent within like Division One athletics and even at the professional level as well. So basically when a coaching job becomes available, whether it be, you know, they fired their previous coach or whatever it may have been, um, you know, basically you're going to hire this search firm and you're going to work with them to develop a candidate profile. And what that will include is, you know, basically what you're looking for. If you look at football, you know, what kind of offense are you looking to run? What kind of defense are you looking to run? What kind of track record? Do you want a previous head coach? Do you want someone who's only been a coordinator? Do you want, you know, there's a million different characteristics that, you know, they work through and it's a, a pretty extensive process. And so after that point, once that kind of candidate profile has been built, the search firm will kind of, you know, work within the organization to kind of to get a feel for where their organizational culture is at. You know, you'll work within a community to kind of get a feel for, you know, how everything really stands as a whole. And so once that has kind of been established, the, um, you know, the search firm will go out and they'll develop this list of candidates, uh, whether it be a list of five, 10, 15, whatever it may be, they'll bring that to the hiring committee um, at the university. And then the, if they decide to move forward with any of the candidates, they can, you know, it would go just kind of like a normal hiring process from that point. But there's always the chance that they'll just deny all of the options that they've been given and the search firm will go back out and, you know, work through their catalog even further. So it's really, I mean, a pretty lengthy, extensive process. So um, when you see these jobs filled within, you know, a week or so, it's, it's pretty rare. <laughs> And so how, I guess the first question, how prevalent are these search firms across the US? And I guess the next question is, do all colleges at D1 level do this or is it varying from school to school? I would say for the most part, um, you know, most colleges are going to do this for major positions. So, you know, your football coaches, your, uh, your basketball coaches, things of that nature, um, you're pretty much going to be looking at that and as far as at the D1 level, you know, it does kind of vary. All of the top organization or top universities, uh, like largest universities, are more or less going to use a search firm. Um, as you kind of get towards some of the lower, lower level Division One schools that might not have the funding for it, or more maybe 
more based on like personal connections and things of that nature. You might not see it quite as often, but it's extremely prevalent overall. And then I guess, and you've linked it to a little bit there, the networking side for, for coaches out there seems to be something that's of real importance. Um, one to obviously get a heads up if there are coaching roles that are going to become available or athletic director roles that are going to become available. But I guess two, to have your name in a positive light. Um, I, I guess from the interviews that you've done, what type of networking stuff did they do to kind of get their name out there? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of it is just traditional kind of networking, just getting to know people. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit tougher now, obviously, again, with COVID, but, um, you know, going to different conferences and forums and things of that nature that was you know where you meet a lot of these people and develop some of these relationships and then um, even beyond that you know just kind of working into you know mentorship kind of opportunities you know that's something that even college students now um, are able to kind of get started in and you know reaching out whether it be like via LinkedIn or something like that and just asking to you know meet them for a coffee um, you know just learn more about what makes how they got to where they are, uh, things of that nature, um, kind of moving forward from there though. I think that one of the things that separates a lot of, uh, a lot of, I guess, younger job seekers is that, um, you know, one of the things that I'd found was that they, the people that I had spoken to said that, uh, a lot of the job seekers, they make that initial contact, I guess, as far as a connection, but then they never follow up on it. And, you know, a lot of these people are willing to give their time and give, you know, any expertise or connections that they can uh, provide, but that follow-up is not there. So I think that for people that are looking to break in, you need to make that initial connection, then continue to follow up, even if you don't think that, you know, it's necessarily going to lead to a job or anything like that, it may lead to a different connection. So it's just crucial to be able to, to look beyond a singular event or a singular um, connection and just realize what knowing one person means that you know the people that they know as well. And then, you know, that ball kind of keep, keeps rolling there too. And I assume for this book, you would have had to have done something similar in terms of reaching out to different people that you did or didn't know. How receptive would you say that, um, you know, these college coaches or, or general managers or athletic directors and stuff are to, you know, sitting down having a coffee or sitting down and just spending time to find out about them and what their role entails and all that type of stuff? Yeah, I think, I mean, with the scope of what this book was looking to cover, I think that people were way more um, receptive than, you know, if I was trying to, to write about like the, the inner workings or do some kind of expose, uh, something like that. But uh, that could, I guess, be perceived negatively upon their organization. But I think that everyone, you know, was just super positive and was honestly excited about it because, you know, they get questions, questions all the time from people that are younger, just kind of wondering what the day-to-day -day life is like. And, you know, just from fans in general, there's not really understanding what the day-to-day -day life is like. So, you know, from my aspect, it was extremely positive. So that was great. And was there any further connections and stuff that you made off, off the back of this that you think will support you moving forward, be it if you want to work in sports or not work in, in sports? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I did make a, a quite a few positive uh, connections and, you know, people that I've continued to talk to to this day. So, you know, if I do ever decide to, you know, work in sports again myself, I think that that's only going to benefit me. So, you know, it's the same thing, though, is that, you know, if I did just make that initial contact and never and had interviewed them once or twice and just never spoke to them again, you know, it would have been a lost connection and a lost opportunity. But like I said, you know, you do have to work that follow up and, you know, keep, keep with it. You know, that's how relationships are built. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting. I, I saw uh, uh, someone talking about uh, the late Kobe Bryant and they were saying they didn't realize actually on his phone, the number of people he just checked in on from week to week. And apparently it was extensive where he just dropped them a text to say, you know, how are you doing? You're okay. Or 
Um, I think there was a case of his daughter, daughter played um, basketball against a team once and the coach had asked him a question for a little bit of help and he would text the coach every now and again to see how they're getting on with their fundraising or whatever that be. And I think, as you said there, that, that constant connection with people um, is the crucial bit to networking and having longevity of the network as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, even beyond that, just, you know, it shows that you're a caring person too. And I think that that can go a long way as well. You know, if, if you do, you know, like follow up like Kobe Bryant, like in that situation, it just shows that you weren't just interested in only what they could do for you, but you were interested in them as a person. And, you know, with sports being such a relationship based business, anything that you can do to really show and to really prove that you do actually care about people more than what they can do for you, it's going to be, uh, the more that you can show that, the better. And, you know, that again, it's just even a minor thing like that or or a handwritten thank you note. It's just just overall not going to be a huge effort on your part, but it goes a long way in, you know, achieving what you want to achieve. And I, I think one of the things you, you discussed, obviously, with, with the people going into these roles and whatnot was the prep work that went into the interviews, um, and the wide scope of interviews, it, it it seemed crazy how different some of them were from, you know, almost four interviews from one individual to, you know, almost like a sit down coffee. You've got the job type of deal for others. Can you just talk through, I guess, the experiences of the people in, in, in your book that they had with these interviews and also kind of the extensive prep work that would go into it? Yeah, so I guess on the coaching side, basically what you're going to be wanting to do throughout your coaching career is just continue to build your coaching portfolio and quite literally a portfolio. Um, you know, you're going to want to detail, you know, what you're looking to what you're looking to do on the field. So, you know, laying out your general strategy, your practice schedule, things of that nature and continuing to update that as time goes on. But then beyond that, you're going to want to outline, you know, your general your general values and your vision for a particular organization. And so that's going to vary from organization to organization, you know, based on, you know, what, uh, what role you'll, you'd be taking on, but as far as the vision goes, but. Did you see any of these portfolios? Say that again, I'm sorry. Did you see any of these portfolios like firsthand? Did they show you any? Not with these coaches, no, unfortunately, but um, yeah, that, that they're, also, that's another thing that you could uh, also find as a resource, you know, throughout the internet. Um, but yeah, and I did, I did include at the end of the, the book more of, and the appendix, uh, kind of just a general overview of what I guess a portfolio would look like too. So again, that's what it comes down to, how you deal with different situations. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's definitely worth it in the end, I guess. And then as far as uh, general managers go and athletic directors go, just because you're doing so much more than sports, you know, you're working with sales, you're working with fundraising, um, you know, you're working with event management, facilities management, things of that nature. You know, you have to be prepared to answer questions um, from any number of different people. And I think that, again, Stacy Collins within the book, um, he spoke to uh, a number of different people and it went on for hours and hours and he met with different committees uh, that he had to be prepared to answer. And especially when you're looking at college athletics, you're going to have to answer questions about academics as well. So, um, you know, you, especially with an athletic directors and general managers, you have to be prepared for more or less anything. And that comes back down to your network as well. So one of the people that I had spoken to, um, you know, he did not have a lot of experience within the conference that he was interviewing within so he reached out to different uh, athletic directors that he knew within that within that uh, conference and got some insight about the school from them. And then to go even a step further, you know, you have to be ready to know who you're interviewing with as well. Because like I said, with it being a relationship-based business, just knowing who you're interviewing with and being able to develop that connection with them right off the bat is going to be crucial in getting you uh, kind of to that next step of the interview and kind of breaking the ice there. So when they spoke about those individuals, what, what was some of the common, common themes? Cause like you said, I, I found this bit fascinating when they were saying 
how much they catered to the individuals who were interviewing them. Yeah, so it really does just come down to, you know, developing um, a personal connection with them. So, you know, maybe you shared the same alma mater, maybe you went to the same university, um, you know, maybe you had previously worked in one of the same places, not at the same time, but, you know, just in that same organization. So just really anything that you can do to develop that that kind of bond right off the bat is is going to be huge. And then to go beyond that, and this is where your connections would come in, would be, you know, learning about what that person values within a leader of their organization, what that overall university values, and just seeing if, you know, if that's you, you need to figure out how to sell that, um, sell yourself as that person. But if that's not you, you know, maybe it's not the right, uh, maybe it's not the right opportunity for you. And knowing that right off the bat would be crucial for both sides and important for both sides. I think, yeah, and one of the things you mentioned kind of towards the end is um, as like a bit of advice is be genuine. You said you've got to be genuine in those circumstances. Don't lie because you want the job or don't lie because it, you know, come, comes back to bite you later down the line. Yeah, and I think that one of the things, I mean, just as far as being genuine goes is that, again, that comes down to communication too. You need to be trusted. And um, regardless though, you know, if you're, if you're looking at football and you, if you're uh, an offensive minded coach that, uh, you know, you have, you come in with the strong, strong opinions um, as far as, you know, the type of offense that you want to run, but, you know, the people interviewing you say they want to run this particular offense uh, and then you just lie and say, you know, oh yeah, that would be fine with me. You know, you, regardless, you're going to be judged upon what you agreed to and you're going to be judged upon, you know, something that you may not be comfortable with. So, just being genuine right off the bat, it's just going to lead to, again, more more realistic results and, you know, results that you will know were accomplished based on you doing everything you could rather than doing everything you, you said that you wanted to do uh, when that may not have been true. And one of the best anecdotes I liked about about this regarding the catering your, your uh, interview to the interviewer was the Al Davis story. That you mentioned in there could you just talk through that for the audience because i thought that was that was interesting yeah so uh, uh, ken herrick had uh, definitely interviewed with or had worked with the raiders uh, for years and so al davis was obviously known as one of the uh, how should i say one of the more hands-on owners in the league so i think that everyone kind of went into those experience went into those interviews knowing that you're going to go through a different interview process and you know ken was prepared for that to an extent but uh he definitely uh more more than uh more than a few people were definitely tripped up by al davis and uh yeah definitely i uh, would recommend anyone liking to learn about the raiders to read that story yeah no it, it definitely is interesting the way that you have to cater to his to his outlook and uh, how he'd quiz, quiz you on your philosophies, which um, is, is particularly interesting. Um, I guess f for you as an overriding thing without giving too much away, because obviously you want people to read it, what, what were your main takeaways that if you wanted to get into these advanced roles or you wanted to you know, progress in this thing that you should look to do um, to best prepare yourself for it? Yeah, I mean, right out of the gate is just networking. Um, that's going to be far and away the most important thing. It's a large, like I said, it's largely a relationship-based business. So it really, it's not, I would not like to go back on the cliche of saying, you know, it's not about who you know, it's or it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. Because you also, I mean, you need to know so much information to be able to run these different organizations. You know, these are $100 million, billion-dollar organizations. So you do need to know your stuff, but again, it does come down to a lot of those connections and, you know, being able to make those connections is a huge deal. Um, beyond that though, I think one of the more important things is that you do need to have a passion for sports and just, you need to be ready for that passion to be tested at a number of different times. Like I said, with, with social media uh, existing, you know, you can, you can be sitting there at a game at, you know, 12 o'clock or 12 uh, midnight on a, on a Saturday night, you see your friends are all out and all that. Uh, and then you're at the game for, you know, the, the 10th day in a row, or you're at, you're at the, the ballpark for the 10th day in a row. So 
you know, you just, again, you need to be ready uh, for all the expectations that are going to be asked of you and your passion for sports is definitely going to be tested. But with that being said, you know, it's a generally, it can be incredibly, incredibly re rewarding. And a lot of the highs are, you know, not really comparable to anywhere else you would find. So like I said, you know, that's, that's probably going to be the most crucial thing is, that, you know, networking. And then again, just being passionate about sports. Yeah, for sure. And um, one one character, and I, I want to leave this towards the end because I, th I thought it was interesting. And I can't remember the gentleman's name, which I feel a bit bad for, but was the former NBA player. Yeah, Lance Blanks. Yeah. Can you just talk through his journey and his experiences? Because I, I think, particularly in England at the moment, there's a real push for former players to kind of get into coaching and whatnot. Um, and there's always discussions around using the experiences they've had compared to maybe they haven't had so many experiences in a coaching pedagogy type environment or a recruitment type environment or anything like that. So can you just talk through his journey? Because I, I thought that was quite interesting, the kind of all the stops he had on his journey. Yeah, so luckily I was fortunate enough to speak to a couple of different NBA players. Um, Lance Blanks, who he was a former first round pick of the Detroit Pistons. Um, you know, he had gone from his coaching career and then began working in the San Antonio Spurs organization uh, where he's working in uh, scouting. So, you know, that's a pretty direct, pretty direct, you know, you can, having played yourself, you're involved within constant film breakdowns and things of that nature. So scouting is a pretty natural path for a lot of former players to follow. And then he eventually, you know, worked his way into assistant general manager and then general manager. So just kind of increasingly growing roles. But as far as Lindsey Hunter goes, who had a 18 or 20 year NBA career, you know, he has went on the coaching side and that can be many times a tougher thing to break into, you know, especially with elite level athletes. Um, a lot of times it can be tough to explain and to coach, um, you know, what you did on the court uh, because a lot of times it just came natural. So, you know, it's, it's, can be tough to translate a lot of those, you know, skills that you performed into to showing someone else how to do them. Uh, but, you know, like him himself, you know, he was a, he was an assistant coach in the NBA um, and then was an interim coach in the NBA as well. But even him, you know, once you're, if you're out of basketball for even a year, it can be tough to get back in. And, you know, him having coached and having played at the top level, he has uh, had to go to a lower level division one school that's more local to him. And so, you know, he's going to be in the process of building that program back up and we'll see how he can go about it. But it's, it's, it's a very tough industry. And, you know, Lindsey Hunter, I think pretty much displays that he's uh, had an interesting ride to get to where he's at. And I guess having the connection with him now, I guess I'm definitely rooting for him. I think one of the interesting things about both of them as well is they mentioned how they've been in a kind of good, stable organisations um, and then at different points ended up going to ones that maybe were a slightly more dysfunctional and saying how challenging that was for them. Um, do you want to talk through their experiences like that? I particularly like the one where, and I think this was Lance, but I could be wrong, where he had to almost upskill his boss and he was having to kind of tell him the roles that should and shouldn't be happening and whatnot. Yeah, and I mean, that that's just pretty illuminating as far as how that entire process goes. And like we had mentioned at the start of the conversation, the difference between a good organization and a bad organization. Um, you know, it, I'm sure it was jarring for Lance Blanks to go through that, going from uh, San Antonio and then eventually getting to Phoenix and just seeing how things are kind of chaotic. And it doesn't necessarily seem like there's one direction that the organization wants to go in and things are being pulled all over the place. So, you know, it, it, it's tough to be able to evaluate that. But that's one of the things that you need to do kind of going into these interviews is, you know, it's it's very, very tough to be able to pass up an interview to be a general manager. Um, but because there's only, you know, 30 of them in the NBA. But if you find yourself in a scenario that does have this poor organizational culture and, you know, is kind of chaotic, you know, it could be your last chance to ever work at as a GM. So you really need to be selective, um, you know, with those opportunities and be ready to pass if, 
if that's the opportunity or if it's not going to be the right opportunity for you. And, you know, just kind of looking at Lance Flanks, obviously that did not go very well in Phoenix. And, you know, maybe if he had stuck it, stuck around in uh, Cleveland or stuck around in San Antonio for a couple more years, he might have found himself in a better situation and, you know, might still be, you know, holding down that role now. And did he, did he, oh, sorry, did he mention any particular tells of how you'd be able to highlight maybe a little bit from the outside or going into the, into those interview processes that the organizations may be a little bit chaotic or might have some issues? Yeah, so I think that a lot of it's going to come down to, you know, when you're in the interview process and even just from an outsider's perspective, working with different connections, working your network again, um, you know, having, sp speaking to people that have been within the organization over the years, that's going to be um, a factor. But then when you're in the interview itself is, you know, you need to be interviewing them too. You know, if they're not answering, you know, your questions directly or they're not, they're being vague or, you know, whatever it may be, you need to take that into account and realize that, you know, if they're not being trustworthy and they're not being straightforward now, I mean, can you really expect that to happen as you're actually hired and a member of that organization? So it's just an entire process that needs to be kind of factored in. I guess the, the last statement I'll make before I ask you a final question and, and let you shoot off was the, um, the, the idea of, of one of the people in the book were, was talking about, you know, these interview processes and how at times they can be very stressful and they can be, as you said, some of them were four interviews long, some of them were hours long, some of them shorter. And what he realised after going through a few of them is you'll always make mistakes in the interviews but it's how you deal with the mistakes as you're making them that can be a really good tell if you're being, from the interviewer's point of view, they can tell you made a mistake, but seeing how you deal with it is actually quite a big proportion of whether they're willing to hire you or not. Yeah, and I mean, like we've kind of talked about is that, you know, with the interviews being how extensive they are, it's really impossible to know everything. And there's no one that has the answer to every question that's out there. So... I guess kind of just being able to roll with the punches and, you know, just admitting, like, if you don't know something, if you're not completely educated on it, um, just, you know, say that, you know, that will be an area of focus as you kind of move within the role. That'll be an area of focus where you're going to commit yourself to learn more about it, but, you know, not getting trapped within, you know, oh boy, I, I didn't know this particular thing and letting that kind of snowball into future answers, you know, letting it be its own thing and, you know, letting it be its own growing point rather than, again, letting it affect the rest of the interview is definitely a big thing. Yeah, it was good. And I think that's something that everyone can definitely take away because we all have those interviews where you are, oh, I wish I hadn't said that, but it's kind of one of those things. So I guess the question is, what what's the plan for you now? What's Obviously, you've done a little bit kind of in, in pro sports. You're doing a little bit in terms of writing and stuff now. What's your plan moving forward? Yeah, so I've got, uh, I guess in the immediate future here, I'll have a second book coming out next year. Um, this one, it's still related to sports, a little bit different. Uh, it's called uh, The Outliers Being a Cultural Anomaly in Sports. So for that one, I spoke to around uh, 40 or so athletes uh, that come from non-traditional backgrounds. So, uh, you know, African-American hockey players, Asian-American football players, things of that nature. Just kind of learning about the challenges that they overcame and, you know, the different struggles that they dealt with was being underrepresented and then kind of exploring um you know why that is the case that certain um people of certain backgrounds are underrepresented within sports or positions and then to conclude it is kind of like how we can kind of move forward to make sports more inclusive so i uh have definitely kept myself busy <laughs> and then i guess because we haven't touched on this where can people find your current book and the title of your current book because i didn't actually introduce that at the start yeah, no problem. Um, so it's just really a ma any major book retailer, you know, the Barnes and Nobles, but I think the most common one that people have bought it from is Amazon. So, you know, just going on Amazon, searching, uh, you're hired a guide to working in sports that should, uh, that should get you there. Perfect. And I guess last question before I let you go, which is who's the, I guess, most impressive, uh, coach or scout or athletic director or GM that you you've spoken to and why? Yeah, um, I would think that, you know, off the top of my head here, you know, looking at who I'd spoken to for the book, obviously, uh, you know, Phil Fulmer uh, really stands out. He was the 
Uh, he is currently the athletic director at the University of Tennessee. Um, he's been there in that role for quite some time, but he was also a longtime head coach of the University of Tennessee and then had also played for the University of Tennessee uh, for college football. So, you know, just to kind of be able to speak with him, you know, he has decades and decades of experience within sports at a level that most people do not, you know, having played it, having coached it, having, uh, you know, been an administrator and being an administrator. Um, you know, just being able to talk to him was just incredibly enlightening and really kind of expanded my uh, perception of college sports and I guess sports as a whole. And I guess made you root for Tennessee a little bit as well, right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> but listen, Brian, I really appreciate your time. And um, obviously, yeah, thanks very much for, for, for my um, virtual copy of the book. It was really interesting read and I'd, I'd recommend to anyone listening to go and have a look because um, it definitely has some interesting bits, be it if you're in a manager, management role trying to hire someone or equally if you're, you know, kind of out there at the moment looking to try and find some work, which I think everyone's trying to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, I appreciate you having me on. And for anyone uh, that is listening and, you know, has any questions about working in sports, you know, writing the book, getting a, uh, publishing a book, things of that nature, any question you have, just, you know, send me a tweet and I'm sure to respond. Perfect. Listen, Brian, appreciate your time and I'll catch up with you soon. All right. That sounds great. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.